Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. Hey, Brad. And this is the Give First podcast. And in the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities in some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? Excited to have Baden Urin with us on the show today. It's Give First. Baden is located in the Gold Coast area. It's actually called Gold Coast in Australia. If you know where Brisbane is, it's not too far from there. And if you don't know where that is and you know where Sydney is, it's only about, what, a 10-hour car ride? Is that right, Baden, from there? About 10 hours down to Sydney and about another 10 down to Melbourne to give some context. Welcome. You also are at Bond University and work on their entrepreneurship and innovation programs. You've founded a couple of companies. You work on Startup Catalyst there. You've been involved in Techstar Startup Weekend. Excited to chat with you. I'm really pumped. I'm actually wearing my Give First t-shirt today in, in honor of the podcast. And in a couple of weeks' time, I'm going to be up in the regional city of Queensland, Bundaberg, running another startup weekend. So I'm Techstars all around at the moment. Awesome. How many startup weekends have you been involved with so far? I'd say maybe nine or 10, facilitating perhaps six or seven of them and just being a bit of an all-around contributor for the rest. So maybe talk a little bit about what you're involved in there and the different pieces of it, maybe as well as a little bit about how we met years ago. Yeah, thank you. I've actually just come away from a three-day offsite with a good friend of, mutual friend of ours, David Aaron Berkby. And it reaffirmed to me that at my core, I'm an educator. That's what I am. And I think it's natural that I found my way into the university environment, even though I'm not really a traditional research academic. We first met back in May 2017 as part of a Startup Catalyst community leaders mission. Startup Catalyst was created by a man by the name of Steve Baxter as an epic give first entity whose sole purpose was to build the Australian startup ecosystem. And the aforementioned Aaron Berkby was the foundation CEO. And I was fortunate to be on the very first community leaders mission that went to different parts of the world, including Boulder, Colorado, to examine how entrepreneurial communities came to be. So we're all aware of the Boulder thesis and the wonderful book that yourself and Brad have authored amongst others on startup communities. And we were keen to actually, rather than just read that, to actually feel it and experience it. And so our first meeting, David, was in the Techstars HQ. And I think we spent about two and a half hours with you exploring the foundations of Techstars and what it's all about and the mantra that sits behind that global movement, all for the benefit of bringing that back to the Australian context and building that into the fabric of our communities. So Startup Catalyst must have learned a lot on those various trips. And over the years, I don't know, it's been five, six years now, probably total, I'm guessing. What's been applied to the community and what is the community like there? How's it going? So it's an interesting conversation. I think Australia is still in its uh, growth to shake out stage of what's happening in terms of innovation enablement and startup support. I think the Queensland government, for some context, Australia consists of about seven major states and territories. Each of those has significant economic 
economic impact for each of the individual states. And so the Queensland state government decided to really put a lot of grassroots enablement support around the startup ecosystem in about 2016-17. So Startup Catalyst was a recipient of some support for that. And the impact has been immense. The most notable are the relationships that exist amongst the community activators around our great state. It's starting to also contribute to interstate relationships. But I would say that perhaps Queensland went on its own journey and then now that's starting to integrate into other states around Australia. One of the things we talked about when you were here in Boulder, I remember, is this tall poppy syndrome, you called it. And I have to say at that time, I had never heard that term. I had you explain it, didn't know what it meant. And since then, I probably heard it five or six other times from other Australians that, that I've gotten to know. What is it and what's the status of that today? I wrote a blog post about it after your visit. You may remember that. So I'm curious about how that's evolved as an attitude. And for those listening, what was that all about? Yes, thank you. It was an interesting discussion and it continues to be an interesting discussion. My firm view is that the tall poppy syndrome does not exist. It perhaps used to exist, but the common mantra is that it does not. And therefore, we will create that future for ourselves. For the uninitiated, the tall poppy syndrome is part of Australian culture. Each country has its own unique markers of the way in which people develop and succeed within their country. And Australia, we have a real have a go type of attitude. Uh, we're very inventive, we're very innovative. And yet, if somebody becomes too successful, perhaps they've benefited too much for their own personal gain, they become a bit of a social outcast. The general society decides that that's not a desirable attribute of a successful Australian. And we cut down those tall poppies. You can imagine a field of poppies and there's one sticking their head out above of everybody else. I think it goes down to our fundamental belief in equality and social justice and social equality. We're a very community-based society and historically we have rolled against those that deign to put themselves ahead of others. That's, I guess, the basic premise behind what is called the tall poppy syndrome. I know that it's certainly something that limits our ability to enable the types of vanguard activities that are needed to drive the future of economies. We need individuals that are willing to stand aside and to put themselves out on a bit like that uh, that classic leadership video of the of the crazy dancing man that requires the first follower to come along and normalize the behavior and then it becomes the yeah. mass behavior. We need to be able to celebrate those crazy dances and to use them for the benefit of all. It is so interesting how you say every country has their thing. And I found that to be true. You know, here, tall poppy syndrome would basically mean you just get a lot of Twitter followers or whatever. That's the outcome of it, right? Because everyone sort of says, well, that's, yeah, that's what you're supposed to try to do. And obviously it's not the same history of social dynamics. So that plays into it. But I love what you said, which is it doesn't exist. And my guess is that said somewhat tongue in cheek and that it probably still does exist in places. And you're taking an attitude of, we're just going to say it doesn't exist. We're going to act like what we want to become. And we're not going to make that the topic, even though I'm sitting here making it the topic, which may not be helpful. But, but I think that approach is really interesting. So is, is that what you're doing? You're sort of, obviously it's improving, but just saying that that's not how you should behave. That's not the social norm it may change the ecosystem over time. Yeah, I think that one of the greatest things we can do to support entrepreneurs who are having a bit of a go is to celebrate them and to showcase the advancements that are happening. And that requires the lack of a tall poppy syndrome. So for me, the message is clear. The tall poppy syndrome does not exist. It will not exist into the future. Modern Australian society celebrates its successes and supports those that are going out and perhaps putting themselves and their career and their place in society at risk by chasing a dream to advance our community as a whole. Of course, those that are perhaps 
doing for personal gain at the expense of community, perhaps that's something that can be frowned upon. But I think it's gone too far in our understanding of those that succeed. And certainly from my perspective, everything that I put out to market is to celebrate those that have good at their heart, that have the advancement of the Australian society at their core, and they're being very successful in doing so. All right, well, let's stop talking about it since it doesn't exist. Maybe we should just move on. It seems like the country has, and so uh, we'll do the same. I'm curious about your involvement in the community because here you are, you're working within the university. I assume that takes up the bulk of, of your time, but you're on these missions to learn about startup communities. You're very involved in the community with things like Startup Weekend. Why do you do that? I'm going to guess it's not for the pay that Startup Weekend gives you, which I think is zero. It's probably for another reason. Yes, this comes down to the core of me as a human being, David. I truly believe in the strength of community and it's deep set in me as an individual. Yes, I'm in education now, but that wasn't always the case. Um, my commercial background is actually in investment banking and private equity. Going through high school, I was very good at numbers and that translated into being a bit of an Excel jockey. So I've, I've found my way into my calling. I was called into doing a PhD in finance and found that I really enjoyed the teaching and to me, it's actually a bit of an altruistic view. Of course, it's self-centered because I want to be part of the benefit that comes from this. But it's an altruistic view of trying to ready Australia for our uncertain future. We are a traditional resource-based, tourism-based economy, and we're looking to transition as a nation into more of a professionalized service-based economy. And our external environment at the moment is becoming increasingly uncertain. And the beauty of my academic training is I know that entrepreneurs are the masters of uncertainty. This comes back to the research that I've done in understanding the entrepreneurial method and the ways in which entrepreneurs think, reason, and act. And it goes all the way back to the 1920s where Frank Knight, who was one of the, the co-founders of kind of the, uh, the Chicago School of Economics, first put the entrepreneur's role in an economy uh, to the fore and identified that entrepreneurs were the masters of uncertainty. And uncertainty was a different type of risk. It was where the outcome was not known. And more importantly, the attributes that were contributing to that outcome were also not known. It's different to sort of volatility, which is where you can accurately predict what the chance of deviation away from expected is. So yes, we can put a mathematical formula behind and try and predict what the future might be and be fairly accurate at it. But today's society has so many different attributes to it that can't be quantifiably measured. I mean, we only need to think about what's happened with GameStop recently. Nobody expected that a community-based approach and revolution could outwit the financial analysis might of hedge funds. So there's this new reality in today's commercial environment that uncertainty abounds and the entrepreneurial method and the entrepreneurial role within society is becoming far more strategically important. So my job as an educator has been to change the institution of education to build entrepreneurial capability in our youth. If Australia is to be an innovative service-based economy moving forward, we must develop entrepreneurial capability in one of the major contributors to our economy, which is our labor force. And the very best way for that to occur is to influence the institution of education to build that in our youth. So that's been driving me. I've had this mantra for maybe a, a decade to embed entrepreneurship education into our national curriculum. And it's not going to happen overnight. And perhaps I'm 10 years in and I'm just starting to perhaps have a broader impact, not just what I've done at the university in which I'm employed but to spread that amongst our secondary education system into our primary education system such that every Australian child graduates from our schooling system with the ability to be able to deal with uncertainty rather than just being prepared for a job that perhaps might not exist in 10 years. 
What a great goal. And, you know, you talk about uncertainty and things like the GameStop issue and, you know, COVID, obviously another huge one of those. And I've been in touch with other communities around Australia. I did one podcast around Toowoomba. We operate and have operated in Adelaide and Melbourne, of course, Sydney. How in touch are you with other leaders uh, around this national movement? Is it a thing that you feel is picking up steam in the national conversation or more just in, in your university and locally? It's definitely a national conversation. And I think that there have been pockets of activity that are starting to coalesce into a national voice. So you mentioned Toowoomba, that's obviously Joy Taylor, a magnificent woman doing wonderful work. Adelaide has had some champions, uh, similarly in Melbourne and, and in Sydney. We're starting to integrate at a national level. There's a desire to bring a national voice. And if I just take education, given my background, there's movement afoot to bring a national voice to what an accredited entrepreneurship education program might look like and to bring forward best practice such that we can bring those stories together to bring a, a national footprint. Next week, I'm co-hosting an Entrepreneurship Educators Forum, which is designed specifically for that. We're bringing together a collection of voices from around the country to share their own experience and what they believe to be best practice. And the hidden agenda, or the not-so-hidden agenda behind that, it's actually quite blatant, is to collect those voices to inform a national voice. We see that with Startup Oz, an industry body here in Australia that has been doing great work um, in terms of policy activation for government uh, for a number of different years. And I think we see, especially through the work of entities like Startup Catalyst that have been very agnostic in the way in which they draw from different parts of the community. You know, like uh, Steve Baxter, obviously, when he created that, had his own accelerator program, his own co-working space. But similar to what we see happening in Boulder, there's, there was a vision that we all do what we're all good at and collaborate. And that's the best way to drive the nation as a whole. And so... I think perhaps there's been five or six Startup Catalyst community leaders missions, Silicon Valley to Boulder to London to Tel Aviv. Those relationships and those human relationships are, are bridging the gap between the individual experiences around the country. A lot of those places you visited, by the way, are all very different startup communities as well. So every community finds their strengths in their own way over time. If people are listening and they're saying, okay, Baden's really involved in the startup community, you know, he's an educator lest they think that you don't have an entrepreneurial background, you do. You've started a couple of companies as well. And as you mentioned earlier, began your career kind of in finance and private equity. A lot of people listening to this might be finding their own way. Uh, how did you navigate that journey? Those are three pretty different sort of pieces of your career. And maybe there's more than that. But how did you know what moves to make as you as you got a little bit older and moved through time? This is uh, quite an interesting question, David. I think I think at the core is always curiosity. I've got a curious mind. And it leads me to take interest in and to begin journeys in different fields. The way I kind of got into academia was I was doing a bunch of work in the aged care industry. I'd done a, a number of different deals, both on the debt and equity side of roll-ups in, in aged care in Australia. And the Australian government was looking at how they were to provide housing for our aging population. And they were funding about seven different PhDs in to look at different aspects of that. And so I was approached, given my experience in that space, to, would you like to do a PhD? And I was like, hmm, that sounds interesting. And then went down that path and doing a PhD certainly reduced my income significantly from the private equity world to, no. to, being, to being a PhD student. So at the time, I was just picking up some teaching gigs and I found I, I loved it. Like, I think you don't know that you're good at something or that you enjoy something until you have a bit of a go. And you're not going to have a go unless you've got the curiosity to have a bit of a, a shot. And this comes back to 
my argument about education system. I think curiosity as a general capability of the average human that runs through our education system gets squashed the further we go through our institutionalized education system. And it needs to be a capability that is supported and developed so that 18-year-olds, when they're going through this massive transition stage of their life and becoming their own entity, have curiosity at their core and they're willing to try something new. And that allows you to identify something that you really enjoy. Totally agree. I think it's just uh, trying enough things to know what you love and that passion can drive you. So you've found ways to integrate the things you've loved even around entrepreneurship and teaching. I mean, I imagine Startup Weekend in a way is even sort of an experience of teaching and helping others. It is indeed. Yeah. So as you look at the overall ecosystem Australia, I know people listening might be curious, you know, we've obviously seen some big companies come out of the, the startup ecosystem there now that are on the global scene. But what is the what's missing? What do you think is the number one thing that needs to be improved about the national startup scene? Obviously, people have to work locally, but if you could tie it all together, what, what's missing? What's the biggest thing? I think there are a few attributes at play here. One is Australians, despite the fact that we travel broadly in our youth and have a global perspective around travel, when we start businesses, we tend to focus very domestically. And so simply having a global mindset in the way in which you look to start a business is one aspect. And you you mentioned some of the global startups that have Australia as their roots, Atlassian perhaps being the most well-known, Canva, uh, a great Australian success story. A recent one is Fast, uh, a payment solution that just got a Series B based out of San Francisco. So there's a it's happening increasingly. And I think we've just begun later. We perhaps didn't have the type of environment like what happened in Silicon Valley with the might of the Defense Force budget, the research capability of Stanford and Berkeley and surrounds, and the types of venture capitalists that came out to enable on the funding side also the genesis of what became the dominant innovation ecosystem. Or perhaps uh, yourself and Brad making their way to Boulder and deciding let's set up a unique ecosystem here. I think perhaps we're just starting to have that conversation here in Australia. 2016-17, our Prime Minister at the time put out an innovation agenda and put a billion dollars of federal funds behind grassroots support and enablement. And I think that has really changed the conversation around the importance of uh, grassroots startup activity. We suffer from a bit of a, a lack of scale here in Australia. We're 25 million people. We're spread on a country that's the same size as the United States with a population that can be held within New York City. So it's uh, we have some scale and, and logistics issues around that. And I think, as we know, with Give First, that's a, that's a relationship-based. And I think we would do well to continue to drive the interrelations between the attributes that drive startup and, and innovative capability, education, capital, government as a supporter, the community and entrepreneurs themselves and prioritizing the development of the entrepreneurial capability into our workforce. That's what I think is really needed. It's a long-term play. I think that um, Australia uh, is certainly well on its way to that and uh, we're getting some significant successes and I think that will continue to occur. A bit like the fact that the tall poppy syndrome is happening less and less and less, the success of Australian-based startups and innovative organizations will continue to gain traction and commentary around the world and Australia will be seen as the economy that it is, an innovative first world country that has incredibly smart, connected people that can certainly have a positive influence on, on the global scene. 
I remember vividly from when your group visited uh, talking about Give First and people call it and do it differently in different parts of the world. But I remember the deep interest in that as well as the interest in the role of the government, right? You talked about the billion dollars there, which really the, that function is saying, hey, this is important, right? Shining a bright light on the activity, facilitating the activity, but not necessarily trying to lead it. It's led through people like yourself and through entrepreneurs that do the work every day. But that function is really important. But as you think about Give First specifically, have you seen that embed more in the community? Any stories come to mind of maybe people that you wouldn't think help, <laughs> you know, maybe helping someone and that really changing a trajectory or are you starting to see those kind of non-transactional uh, attitudes where people are just helping without any expectation of getting something back? This is critical. So for me, the word give first translates into another word, which is benevolence. Benevolence is the fact that somebody else knows that you have their best interest at heart. And you can have mutual benevolence where two parties on either side of a transaction both know that the other person has their best interest at heart. What that does when that exists is enables vulnerability. It enables people to feel free to express themselves creatively, to take risks vulnerably. And that's what is needed in order to do something new, in order to find a new way to solve a problem that is important in our society. We need people to act vulnerably and to be supported in their vulnerable risk-taking. For me, the number one enabler of vulnerable risk-taking is a trusting transaction. And certainly I see countless examples of that occurring through change agents that have been indoctrinated through the Give First mentality, people that have turned up to a startup weekend and they've been gifted experiences that build their own capability. And I think it would take uh, an interesting human not to integrate that into your own behavior. Once you've been gifted so much, it becomes part of the way in which you interact and Without going into details of individual examples, I think it's permeating the community that around which I operate. And I think we would do well to continue to extend that into the remainder of our economy. I think you're so right about the sort of virtuous cycle of it, right? Once you've experienced the gift of it, that's that's what's been the magic in the accelerators, right? These entrepreneurs come in and everybody in the community is sort of like, here, how can I help? And it's, as you say, just benevolence, right? They're just trying to be helpful. And for them not to give that back is like, of course they're going to, right? They got so much from it. And then it just grows from there. So these things accelerate really quickly in communities once this attitude and mantra get embedded. But I have to say, I don't, I don't know that hashtag vulnerable benevolence works as good as hashtag give first, Baden. I'm not sure. I think I totally agree with you, David. <laughs> People might not spell it right. You can just go with give first. I think it works. Give, give first works. <laughs> So uh, we do a segment here at the end called Rapid Fire, where I just give you quick question, give me quick top of mind answers pretty quickly. And we're going to do it Australian version. So in Australia, what's a startup everybody should check out that they might not know about? Well, if they don't know about Canva, they definitely should. Uh, um, that's the one. I think the beauty of that is uh, there's a dynamic female founder that normalizes the entrepreneurial journey. Melanie Perkins is a classic, classic startup founder, tenacious, persistent, pervasive, and nice and good. And I think that many of our male and female teenagers need to have her as a bit of a rock star picture up on, on the wall and to aspire to be like Mel. Awesome. How about once people can visit Australia again in the future, which I will do to get back to the Australian Open Tennis in Melbourne, I, I got to do that, but not, not this year, not happening. What's a place in Australia that everybody should visit sometime in their life? 
I've just come back from four weeks in Tasmania and, uh, oh my God, it's amazing. It is just beautiful. So get out of the, uh, yes, I mean, Sydney and Sydney Harbour and the Opera House and the bridge is magnificent. Melbourne has culture and beautiful architecture. The Gold Coast has beautiful beaches and magic hinterland. So there are, there are beautiful spots. You can go up to Cairns and go to the Great Barrier Reef, but perhaps check out uh, magnificent Tasmania down in the southern end. Great history of the foundation of our country. Important history for us to understand as a modern nation about the foundation of modern Australia. Of course, Australia's history goes back 65,000 plus years to Indigenous Australia. And certainly, I think we're, I think a trip to Tasmania brings that to the fore. Awesome. I've been to a lot of the other places you mentioned, but never to Tasmania. So that's now on my list. This is good first, after all. How about a nonprofit that you think uh, in Australia is doing amazing work? So there's a, an organization called the Foundation for Young Australians. And they are enabling at a national level with a connection through to federal government and federal government support, the development of a different set of skills amongst our youth. Check out FYA. Got it. And last rapid fire question. How about a person, Australian, dead or alive, although I have found it's more fun with people who are alive, that you would like to have dinner with if possible? <laughs> So there's a gentleman by the name of Professor Rowley Sussex, and this is my inner nerd coming out. He's a linguist, or he's a person who studies language, and he has a segment on the radio called Word for the Day, and he just has an enormous knowledge of the construction of our language. And I think that would be that would be magnificent. Otherwise, Dr. Carl Kruzelniski, he's also a, a magnificent scientist. I'm going to have dinner for three. That's cool. Maybe I'll join someday. Dinner for four. Baden, thanks for joining us. And on behalf of everybody listening, especially those uh, maybe in your part of the world, thanks for all you do to get first entrepreneurs and make it happen out there. It's been wonderful to talk to you, David. And uh, I look forward to the next time we see one another in person. All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one, and reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, Give First. <laughs>